You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. Welcome back to Ashburton. We're uh, about ready to start now. It's political commentary. With Rod Oram this morning. Kia ora, Rod. How are you today? Hey, Kia ora, Rachel. Very well, thank you. Lovely to have you on the show. Let's get stuck straight into Jacinda Ardern's legacy because we had her valedictorian speech yesterday, uh, last day in Parliament officially, and definitely there's a bit of a sense of an end of an era uh, happening around politics at the moment. What's been your big takeaways from what we've seen out of her speech and what you think we're going to see when we start to really reflect on what her legacy is? Um, first, it was a terrific speech. Um, it was uh, deeply honest, as we would expect from her, um, as I think she, uh, as I believe she was in office too. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I would, whatever they feel about her as a politician and as a person, I would um, encourage them to see it. Um, and it brings to mind um, people like Jimmy Carter and Sana Marin in Finland, so Carter in the U.S., and the most extraordinary um, revelations about his life um, now, he's in his final years, 96, um, and um, final months probably, and um, just another extraordinary character, very, very honest um, and forthright, and um, who really struggled um, to um, make a difference when he was president of the United States, so a one-term president. Um, so there's some really interesting parallels there. Um, I think it really brought to mind how difficult it is, not just in our country, but around the world, to have any kind of fact-based discussion about anything. Mm. Um, And um, that bothers, as it does us all, hugely. Um, And um, the fact that somebody who was um, so um, honest and capable as a politician um, was not able to break through that, and in fact generated from some people um, the most extraordinarily um, vicious um, attacks and um, you know, character assassination of various kinds um, is something that we all need to contemplate and, I, and, and figure out how on earth we can do something about this. I'm very glad that she's carrying on um, in the work of the Christchurch Corps. Mm-hmm. I think she will be um, a very powerful voice internationally and very effective. But that's still just one person, um, so this is a challenge for all of us. What do you think we are going to see as her legacy? I guess we're still in the stage of, of um, you know, the first ripple after her time as, as Prime Minister, but what is it sort of looking like might be something we reflect about her time in, in Parliament when we sort of have a bit more uh, history distance between it, perhaps? Um, the, the one point that um, really stuck out was how her um, chief scientific advisor had given her a mug with that extraordinary graph of um, how low um, our excess deaths were during COVID. Um, uh, in, in fact, negative, so we had fewer deaths overall. Um, that was an extraordinary achievement for us as a country um, and as a society, and I think that's too little appreciated or understood. Um, and uh, we were pretty much the best in the world at that. That was year one of COVID. Uh, year two was very much more difficult um, with Delta. And in retrospect, it is too easy um, to criticize decisions made then. But that's when, um, as a country, uh, we began to lose the plot, quite frankly. Um, we need to keep reminding ourselves that not only did we come through 
COVID very well um, in terms of how we handled it as a society. But we also came through with it very well as an economy. Now, yes, there was a lot of pain and disruption, <clears throat> but nothing compared with in other countries. And that's why, for example, the government finances here in New Zealand, um, uh, government debt, net debt as a percentage of GDP, is about the fourth lowest in the OECD. Mm. And that's why our growth rate here is still better than in some other countries. And that's a terrific achievement. And I think we need to understand what we did right there. And then also what we did wrong to slightly, to somewhat blow the advantages um, that we got from that. So that would be the one thing. The other one is I really hope that... Um, the example she set in personality and performance um, in term, uh, um, as prime minister um, is something that does have a legacy, that it does encourage um, good people um, into politics and public service. Um, apart from that, it was far too short a time, mm. um, five years. And um, <clears throat> there will always be this big unknown, this big guessing game of what could it have been um, if it had been a longer term. But again, we're seeing this around the world where political careers are astonishingly short um, and they are kneecapped at a very early stage, far too um, early. Um, and um, societies are not getting the benefit of uh, the talent and the expertise that's offered. Um, so, um, yes, there was far little um, on climate, um, an issue that I and many others are very critical of. Um, yes, she was... Um, in fact, surprisingly conservative in many respects and always felt that she could only move, this is a democracy after all, as fast as um, public opinion. Yeah. And so we need to ask ourselves as a country how on earth we have these conversations that we can actually make these transformational changes we've got to make mm. and we're failing to have those discussions. So that's, again, a task for all of us. The, let's let's stick around Parliament now because there's been a really interesting conversation around lobbyists and lobbying and some changes that are coming through. We haven't got a, a whole lot of time, but let's start with a very basic question here. What What is a lobbyist and what do they actually do in central government politics? Uh, they're a go-between, <clears throat> between um, a vested interest that wants something or doesn't want something to happen, yeah. um, and the politicians who then um, decide whether or not that happens. That's what a lobbyist does, and that's what they're paid to do. Some of them do it pro bono, but basically money and jobs are involved. Um, and um, obviously you, the best lobbyists are the ones who have relationships uh, amongst the politicians, and therefore ex-politicians are off to a great start because they know exactly how the system works and they know lots of people in it, not just fellow politicians, but in the civil service too. Um, so that's the role of lobbyists. Now, I think that's a legitimate role, but the problem is in a small country like ours, where we're very closely knit, it's very easy to be an effective lobbyist um, in very subtle ways um, behind the scenes. It's just very easy to bump into somebody mm. in Wellington or know where to find them or pick up the phone to them. <clears throat> so that's why I think lobbying in New Zealand is far more insidious <clears throat> than we think it is. Um, and it's really, really hard to um, <clears throat> police or control in any way <clears throat> because it is so easy to be subtle um, in such a um, close-knit country. <clears throat> so again, it's something we need to be far more alert to um, and, and really push um, you know, the, the social um, um, rigour here by which we try to keep um, <clears throat> lobbying, uh, which is a legitimate activity done properly um, um, in, in proper control. 
So one of the big conversations that seems to be, I guess, the driving force for the the changes we've seen, which we can talk about uh, right now, but is is transparency. And this conversation that we've really heard a lot about over the last, well, over the pandemic, really, uh, but over maybe the last 10 years, there's been a real focus to to understand transparency in central government. What, What has been the changes we've seen this weekend? And what do you think it's going to mean, particularly going into an election year? Um, the m- most important one um, uh, with Stuart Nash um, was how the OIA was used. So this completely ridiculous distinction between him as an MP as him as a minister. And so it was apparently all right if he takes off his ministerial hat. So as an MP to relay what he learned um, in the cabinet meeting in a cabinet meeting um, as um, a minister. That's a ridiculous um, failure of the OIA system. Mm. And so the first thing is to um, tighten up on that very considerably. Um, But however rigorous those transparency requirements are, you would still not get round all the quiet um, back-channel stuff that goes on. Um, And um, again, it comes down to the social contract and and how we sort of police that. Uh, Everybody polices that behaviour themselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really hard to legislate. You could do things, and we should, like have a minimum stand-down period for an ex-politician before they can become a paid lobbyist. <clears throat> the suggestion is one year. I think it should be longer. Yeah. Time for those relationships to cool off a bit um, before the lobbyist then goes about their work. Yeah, totally. I, we have got so much more we could talk about on this, but um, we might have to come back to that on another week. Same with getting your thoughts around what we're going to see come out of the Auckland Council's budget, but we will come back to you on those ones, Rod, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But have a great long weekend, and we will talk to you pretty soon. Fabulous. Thanks, Rachel. See ya. See ya. You just heard a bit of political commentary. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.